This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Naomi, and this is an introduction to the people that ask me what I do. So welcome to my brain. Naomi Osaka, the highest paid female athlete of all time at the age of 23. At press conferences, Osaka is charming and funny, even in response to tedious or sometimes ridiculous questions. How come that your last name is the same name of the city? Everyone's who was born in Osaka, their last name is Osaka. Hey. Is that true? No. <laughs> not caught up in a lot of bad stuff. How do you know I'm not caught up in bad stuff? <laughs> when she's serving the ball, it's like, tut, 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 and then I'm arguing with myself. Don't do it, do it, don't do it, do it. And then the ball comes. And then I hit it down the line and it goes in the net. And then I'm like, why did I do it? (laughs) But Osaka skipped a post-match news conference after her first round victory at the French Open and was slapped with a $15,000 fine. She then withdrew from the Open, tweeting that she experiences huge waves of anxiety before speaking to the media and has suffered long bouts of depression. There's no court case at this point. But in the court of public opinion, it's ignited a debate about whether sports organizations should provide their star athletes with modifications or reasonable accommodations for mental health reasons. Joining me is Ruth Kalker, a professor of constitutional law and disability discrimination at Ohio State University. Ruth, what's your first reaction to what happened to Osaka? Well, I think that we need to think about this through a disability frame and that people for whom their disability is such that they would request accommodations, entities should be reasonable in considering those requests. And I think in her case, her request to skip post-match press conference should certainly be considered to be reasonable. Ruth, would the Americans with Disabilities Act cover a situation like this if it happened in this country? As you may know, the USTA has stated publicly that they would expect Naomi Osaka to attend press conferences if she participated in their tours. And so if they went through with that rule without accommodating her disability, in my view, they would likely be in violation of the ADA. The ADA says that a disability is a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activities. And so it specifically says physical as well as mental and mental health issues are obviously something that can constitute an impairment. The tennis organizations require these press conferences. How would that requirement be viewed in the framework of the ADA? So what the ADA says is that employers can put down in writing what they consider to be the essential job functions of a particular job. So I'm a law professor. So if my employer would put down what our the essential functions of my job, you would expect them to include things like teaching my classes, right? Something of that sort. And if the employer puts down that something that's essential, then the courts tend to err on the side or tend to conclude that it probably is essential. But that doesn't preclude the employee from saying, you know, actually that was peripheral, not essential. And so if it's only a peripheral part of the job, then you can ask for an accommodation to be excused from engaging in that part of the activity. 
So when we think about tennis, when we think about the USTA running a tennis tournament, we think that most of us would say, well, the essential thing is getting to the court, being there on time, using a racket that meets the guidelines that they have, possibly wearing clothing that they say, you know, is befitting of the match that's going to be held. And so that's what most of us, I think, would say is essential about tennis. And now the USTA is adding on to that by saying, well, attending press conferences is essential. That's something that an employee would be able to challenge and say, well, wait a minute, why are you saying that? Why is that so essential? How does that affect the game that's being played that I'm an employee uh, of your entity and, and engaging in that kind of activity? So, Ruth, 20 years ago, Casey Martin sued the PGA to be able to use a golf cart during competitions. Right. And that turned out to be a victory for disability rights. How might that ruling apply here? Right. That's the perfect analogy. So what happened in the Casey Martin case is that Casey Martin has a genetic disorder in his leg, which makes it very difficult for him to stand for extended periods of time. He can stand enough to go to the tee and play golf. Um, but if he would walk from shot to shot, hole to hole, um, it would so impair him that he had actually would be at risk of having his leg amputated. That's, that's how serious his physical impairment is. And so he could not literally play golf on in certain um, PGA tournaments if they were not going to allow him to use a golf cart to advance from hole to hole. And there was a rule in writing that said that you had to walk from hole to hole. You were not allowed to use a golf cart. So that's a little bit like the Naomi Osaka situation, right? There's a rule in writing it says you're expected to attend these press conferences. But what Casey Martin argued was it was reasonable to modify the rules to accommodate his very serious physical impairment by allowing him to ride the golf cart from hole to hole, and that that would not fundamentally alter the nature of the enterprise that the PGA was running. And in particular, it would not give him a competitive advantage by sitting in a golf cart rather than walking from hole to hole. The PGA disagreed with him. They felt that it gave him a competitive advantage, and that was a factual question. There was a hearing at which various renowned golfers testified in both directions, and at the end of the day, uh, the court concluded that um, riding a golf cart wasn't an essential aspect of the game. It wasn't like changing the club or the weight of the balls or the way you kept score. Um, and so it's, I think it's very analogous to Naomi Osaki's situation because I think attending a press conference is even more peripheral to the game of tennis than riding a golf cart when you play golf. So from that precedent, it sounds like Naomi Osaka would have a great case if she did decide to sue. Right. And, you know, I would hope that that the USTA got some lousy legal advice and acted a little hastily and that upon further reflection, um, they won't require this to become a legal case, that they'll they'll talk with Naomi Osaka and, and they'll have a conversation. They'll figure out how they can reasonably accommodate her so that so that the world has an opportunity to see this great tennis player play tennis. Um, and they have an opportunity to do the kind of publicity that, that's necessary for them as a business to, to have these tournaments. When you compare the reaction of the French Tennis Federation to Roger Federer withdrawing to preserve his knee and his energy for Wimbledon, he said, it's important that I listen to my body and I don't push myself too quickly on my road to recovery. And the president of the French Tennis Federation didn't question his decision, said he had too much respect for Roger. And 
Federer was not fined for the withdrawal. It seems like a stark contrast to what happened to Osaka. I'm wondering about the comparison between, you know, a physical problem right. and a mental problem, or perhaps between a man and a woman, I don't know. Yeah, well, as I said, the, the French Federation wouldn't be covered by the ADA. They'd be covered by their own domestic law, and I'm not an expert in French domestic law uh, with regard to disability. But typically what laws at both the U.S. and the international level say is that both physical and mental impairments are equally considered to be disabilities, and therefore the rules about accommodation would be exactly the same. Um, and if if someone is treated differently, then that sounds to me like a, a discrimination problem. But as I think you know in the United States that there's been a lot of attention in recent years that we should take mental health disabilities as seriously as we take physical health impairments. And so I think one of the things the Naomi Osaka case is raising for us as a, as a community is to just remember that mental health impairments are every bit as real as physical impairments. And so hopefully people are treating Naomi Osaka with the respect that she's entitled to as someone who's who's claiming to have a mental health impairment. Thanks, Ruth. That's law professor Ruth Kalker of Ohio State University. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The Supreme Court is approaching the finish line of the term with decisions in 22 cases to be handed down before the justices take off for three months of vacation. Among those cases are the constitutionality of Obamacare, a case involving foster care that pits religious rights against gay rights, an election law case that could be consequential, a case on college athletes' compensation and on whether schools can regulate off-campus speech. The justices are also deciding which cases to take for next term. Joining me is Kimberly Strawbridge-Robinson, Bloomberg Law Supreme Court reporter. Kimberly, let's start with a disagreement between the White House and the Justice Department on a case for next term. There's a provision in federal law that the White House has expressed disagreement with, but the Justice Department plans to defend at the Supreme Court. Tell us about that. Right. So there's this case that the Supreme Court has agreed to hear at the request of the federal government, which is a lower court ruling that found that this federal law uh, violated equal protection. And what this law does is it provides uh, supplemental Social Security income to uh, low income individuals who are either elderly, blind or in another way disabled. The law, though, applies in the 50 states and D.C. and some other territories, but does not apply in Puerto Rico. And that's why the lower court said uh, that this law was invalid. The Supreme Court is going to review that. And in doing so, uh, the parties have filed their briefs and the Department of Justice filed theirs uh, earlier this week. And it was accompanied by kind of a strange statement by the White House, which said, while the White House doesn't agree with this law, it is the duty of the Justice Department to defend federal laws, and that that's the approach that it's going to take here as well. The Justice Department hasn't defended every federal law. For example, recently, the Trump administration didn't defend Obamacare. That's right. And, you know, we, we've seen occasionally from not just the Trump administration, but administrations before that, that this so-called duty to, to defend isn't really ironclad. 
Uh, and so I think most famously, we saw the Obama administration refuse to defend the Defense of Marriage Act, uh, which defines marriage as between a man and a woman for all federal purposes. And, you know, this happens a handful of times. It's happened a few dozen times since the 1970s. And it really depends on, you know, the administration and how far they're, they're willing to go to defend a statute that they think is really not defensible. There have been Supreme Court arguments where the justices asked the lawyers why they had changed positions in the case, especially during the Trump administration. There were sometimes two different agencies, the Justice Department and, for example, the EEOC were arguing against each other even. That's right. And so that situation's a little bit different sometimes in those situations. The administration is defending the law, but they're defending it in kind of a different way. Um, and so the Supreme Court will ask will appoint someone to argue uh, that position as well. Uh, The Biden administration has done this quite a bit as well, shifting positions from uh, previous positions taken by uh, the Trump administration. And, you know, I think that's just something that the justices expect to see whenever they see administrations turn over, particularly where they turn over from a Republican to a Democrat or vice versa. So now the Supreme Court turned away a case over the mail-only draft The Supreme Court ruled on this. Tell us about the ruling in 1981. Well, the Supreme Court back in 1981 did have a challenge to the mail-only draft, and they said at the time that that was okay. One of the things that they looked at was the fact that women at the time were actually barred from combat duty. And, of course, that has changed over over the past decade. The reason I think that the Supreme Court decided not to take up this case wasn't because they think that that's still a good rule, but because this is something that Congress is actively considering. And so it seems, at least for now, that the Supreme Court is going to let Congress take a whack at this first, uh, and then maybe down the line, if nothing happens, we'll see the justices step in. Who brought this case? Well, this was brought by a group um, who was in the ACLU who is challenging, uh, you know, this male-only draft, who wants to see it really opened up uh, to females as well, um, which is something interesting. It's not all the time that we see people ask to be Uh, part of uh, registering for the draft. But, you know, that's something I think that from a feminism or from equal protection is something that is important for this group. And what did the Fifth Circuit say about this? Well, the Fifth Circuit said, you know, it's really up to the Supreme Court to change the law, even though facts on the ground have changed. It's not the prerogative of the lower federal courts to, you know, change or to ignore Supreme Court precedent that really the challengers were stuck uh, making their case to the justices. Tell us about the comment that was written by Justice Sonia Sotomayor, joined in by Justices Stephen Breyer and Brett Kavanaugh. Right. So this is uh, kind of an odd matchup here, um, (laughs) you know, having two of the court's liberals um, joined by Brett Kavanaugh. But essentially they said, you know, this is something that Congress is trying to work out for itself. And they said, you know, at least for now, we're going to go ahead and defer to Congress and let them take, you know, this issue up and have the first shot at it. Uh, But they didn't leave out the possibility that, you know, if Congress fails to act, that the Supreme Court will be there waiting to hear the case. I was trying to figure out why those three might want to make that kind of a statement in this case. Yeah, we don't really know. I mean, oftentimes we don't even have any statement from the justices telling us, you know, who voted uh, to turn the case away, who voted to take it up. 
Um, here we do have this statement from these three justices. Uh, again, an, an odd kind of mix. Um, we don't know why others didn't join, but you know, it is more information than we than we typically have. So let's turn now to, and this is an area that I think a lot of people have heard about, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, FISA. So tell us the issue here. Sure. So this is a case that the Supreme Court agreed to take up for next term, and it deals with a provision that changes the way that courts are supposed to look at evidence that's claimed by the government to involve state secrets. So these are things that could threaten uh, national security. And the challenge here um, is that the Ninth Circuit said that when Congress passed the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, that it actually did away with what courts had been previously doing under judge-made law uh, and created this new process for courts to consider uh, these state secrets. And in this process, the government has to turn over the information to the court, whereas before they did not. Uh, the court kind of trusted that the government was was protecting state secrets and that these things would implicate uh, national security. Uh, that's not the case, at least not in the Ninth Circuit, which is where this case comes from. And so the Supreme Court has decided to take a look as well. What was the distinction the Ninth Circuit made to reject the government's argument? Yeah, they said that, you know, once Congress passed this act, that it actually did away with this kind of judge-made rule. It said, you know, we made up this rule in the absence of there being a congressional statute, but now that there is a statute, we have to follow what the statute says. The government, for its part, says, you know, Congress didn't want to do away with the whole way that courts were doing it. It was just really in this really small sliver of cases where the government wants to affirmatively use the evidence against someone else. Um, So they're urging the Supreme Court to rule that this process only applies in a really narrow circumstance and not in a case like this where individuals are trying to use the information against the government. And explain who brought the case. These are three Muslim men who claim that they were targets of what they call a dragnet surveillance program by the FBI. You know, this was alleged to have been year-long surveillance, not just of these three people, but of just Muslim individuals in general that eventually ended up targeting these three. Um, So those are their claims. This is a really early process uh, that this case is in. And so none of those facts have been proven yet. But at least for now, that's the way that the court is operating, that what's been alleged is true. So it's June, and we're waiting for the Supreme Court decisions in cases that were argued this term, these really high-profile cases. Lately, they've been handing down opinions in cases that didn't get a lot of notice, but the big cases have yet to come. Obamacare is sort of puzzling to me because it was argued in November. Most people assume from the argument that the justices wouldn't be doing away with Obamacare. Why do you think it's taking so long? Well, I do agree that the justices didn't seem to want to go as far as the challengers here were urging them to go, and that is to find that the whole act, all the provisions in Obamacare were invalid. Uh, I do think one of the reasons that it's taking so long is that there are a lot of other issues in the case. So that you know, with just one part of kind of three parts to the case. And all these issues, there's a standing issue about who can bring a case. There's the merits issue about whether or not this certain provision of the law is valid. And then there's this severance issue about whether or not, you know, if that provision is valid, if the whole act must fall. And so there's a lot of ways 
for the nine justices to come out differently. And I think we're, we're going to be expecting one of those decisions where we get, you know, one justice concurring and joining in part A, 1, B, 2, 4, but not A, 1, B, 2, 5 or, or whatever it might be. Looking forward to that. Um, so, now, a case that has drawn a lot of attention is the case where gay rights and religious rights seem to be in conflict. Tell us about that case. That's right. That was actually argued way back in November, too. I think one of the reasons that this case is taking so long is just because it's genuinely a really difficult issue for the justices to sort out. So this is as you hinted at, one in a long line of cases where the justices are trying to balance you know, these anti-discrimination laws that are meant to protect LGBT citizens and, you know, the rights of other individuals to practice their religion freely. And this case is made even more difficult because we're dealing with uh, the Philadelphia foster care system and Catholic Social Services, which has actually been involved in Philadelphia's foster care system longer than the city itself. So these issues are really tough for the justices, and I suspect that they're trying to work through an opinion that really respects both sides. Often the most controversial cases seem to get decided in the last days of the term. And some people say it's because those are complicated decisions and it takes a while to get all the opinions in, et cetera, et cetera. But could the court be holding back these controversial decisions until the last minute before they scoot off for vacation? Well, they do say that as the opinions are, are finished, that's when they send them out. It may be that the justices, you know, it, it does just take more time to write an opinion that has a majority and a dissent than it does take to write a unanimous opinion. And that's what we've been getting most often so far up to the term are just these really short unanimous opinions, sometimes just a few pages long. Whereas when you have one of these controversial cases that are going to divide the justices, maybe 5-4 or 6-3, you, know, you have to put out a majority opinion. You have to get a dissent. They have to respond to the dissent. The dissent might change as well. And so, you know, it does just take them longer to even write the decision, let alone come up with the right answer. Maybe I'm just too suspicious, Kimberly. Okay. <laughs> so also, there are two cases from Arizona that involve election law that could have far-reaching impacts. That's right. And this case is really flying under the radar. So much has happened this term with the death of RBG and with the newest justice and trying to figure out how this new court is going to shake out. But this one has been flying under the radar. The issue in the case deals with two specific Arizona provisions, but the case is important because it could implicate really most voting rights challenges going forward. And so to understand this case, you have to understand the Supreme Court's decision in Shelby County, which undid a really large protection for voting changes that required that states with a history of discrimination get their voting changes pre-cleared before those changes can go into effect. That's no longer the law, although there are some efforts in Congress to change that. And now what's left is kind of an after-the-fact challenge. And because it's an after-the-fact challenge, most challenges have happened under that pre-clearance formula. Now the Supreme Court is kind of playing catch-up and setting the rules for what it's going to look like when courts try to analyze those challenges under this other provision. Now, a case that did not fly under the radar was the case involving off-campus speech and a cheerleader who said some things that the school found objectionable. That's right. This was, you know, an individual who was upset that she didn't make the varsity team 
when someone else did. I think we can all relate to how she was feeling. But she did use the F word on social media and was punished subsequently for, for using those terms. And this is a really hard case for the justices, too, because they had decided a case long ago that says when you're at school, you lose some free speech protections, but you do hold on to a lot of them. But that issue just gets, you know, kind of muddied up whenever you're talking about social media, which maybe it doesn't happen on campus, but it affects campus in a way that those issues just weren't there when the Supreme Court has decided the school speech cases before. And so it's another one of these cases where the justices are trying to kind of update their old case laws to incorporate new technology. Are there any other cases that you're looking for particularly? I think that really does capture most of the cases that we're watching really closely. There is another challenge from the NCAA, which looks at whether or not student-athletes can be paid for playing their sport, given that so many schools do really benefit financially from things like football and basketball programs. So that's another one to watch. But I'm going to be watching to see, too, how this court, newly reconstituted with these three Trump appointees, comes out if they're going to continue to be unanimous in a lot of these cases or as we get closer to the end of the term, whether it's going to be more divided. And also, all eyes are on Justice Stephen Breyer because people think that if he's going to retire this year, he would do it on the last day of the term. He doesn't have to do it on the last day of the term, right? Right. He can do (laughs) whatever he wants. can do whatever they want. But that is a traditional time. You know, we saw Justice Kennedy announce after the Supreme Court had announced its last opinions for the term, say that he was going to be stepping away from the bench. And that makes a lot of sense because it gives the president time to nominate someone and Congress time to hold hearings and to confirm someone. So I would suspect that if Justice Breyer plans to step away, that he'll do it at the end of June. But as you mentioned, of course, he can do it whenever he wants. Thanks, Kimberly. That's Bloomberg Law Supreme Court reporter Kimberly Strawbridge-Robinson. This is Bloomberg.